John Calvin wrote that the scriptures are like spectacles, glasses that we put on to enable us to see you, the world, and ourselves clearly. But we recognize that even with the glasses on, unless your spirit is giving us the vision to see and to understand that we will not be able to interpret your word properly or correctly. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would counsel and teach and lead and guide us into all the truth this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to do something a little bit different. I don't do this all the time. I don't promise that I will do it all the time, but I'm led to do it this morning. We're going to read from Psalm 23. And what I'd like you to do, the words are going to be projected up on the wall. I'd like you to stand as we read God's word. This is the very word of God. And I do feel like we need to revere and honor that as we come before it. So if you're, if you're able, please stand as we read from Psalm 23. That begins, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Friends, this is the very word of the Lord, and you may be seated. The Lord is my shepherd. These are some of the most familiar and may I dare even say famous words in all of the Bible. I haven't taken a formal survey, but I would imagine that if you were to do a survey even in town and in our cities and in our communities and ask people who are not necessarily regular churchgoers and not familiar with church life, whether they've heard of the words, the Lord is my shepherd, you know, probably along with verses like, for God so loved the world and parables like the Good Samaritan, these are probably some of the most familiar words in all of the scripture. I would probably hearken to say that most people have heard of the words... For if they've attended a funeral in their life, they've probably heard the words, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But what do these words mean, both in their original context and to us? Are they words that we only hear when we attend a funeral? Are they words we only appropriate when we're pondering or facing suffering or facing maybe our own death or mortality? Or do they have an impact on us? Do they shape and govern and mold our lives in our Monday through Saturday daily living? Do we live out of the reality that the Lord is my shepherd? I lack nothing. I mean, think about that. That's not just he puts food on our table and clothes on our back and a roof over it. I don't have to prove myself. I lack nothing. I don't have to justify myself. I lack nothing. I don't have to validate myself with success, with work, with everybody liking me, with finding everybody's approval, with everybody turning towards me and being favorable. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Do we believe those words? 
And like I said, not just as an abstract, theological, doctrinal truth, but as a functional, it grips, it shapes, and it governs your soul. In its original context, the title, the subtitle, that I kind of remind us of week after week, reminds us that this was written by David. And so we see that David is confessing that the Lord was his shepherd. But of course, as we go on, we're going to see in its fulfillment, that of course the Lord Jesus Christ himself is our shepherd. He said in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. And we'll also see that Jesus, as our substitute, living the life we ought to live, walking in our steps, that Jesus was also one of the sheep who had the God the Father as his shepherd. We're looking at the Psalms and we're asking the question, how do the Psalms help us cultivate intimate communion with God? You know, Jesus, in the Gospel of John, when he said, I am the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for my sheep, and my sheep know me, and I know my sheep. Later on in John's God, he told us to abide, to stay, to remain in his love, to cultivate that that we abide in his person. We experience and cultivate his presence in, in his life. We don't just believe and have abstract theological principles that we say we believe in and take in as information, but they actually become the power for our lives. And so we're looking, by looking at the various genres of the Psalms, the texts that, that have familiarity of tone or of structure, of poetic structure, we're looking at how we can develop and live out of and cultivate our union with God through the ups and downs of daily life. Psalm 23 can be characterized as a confidence psalm. When David proclaims, the Lord is my shepherd, he is saying, I have confidence and trust in the Lord. And even though I'm being, later on in the psalm, we're going to say, in the presence of enemies, I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, The paths of righteousness the Lord leads him through doesn't mean all the time, hey, I'm going out to dinner and having fun and watching sports and drinking a beer. Paths of righteousness includes the valley of shadow of death, includes the presence of enemies, and yet David is confidently walking through, abiding and trusting that the Lord is his shepherd. So we want to approach this text and we want to ask ourselves, I think, a very practical question. At least I'll share it's practical for me. Maybe it's not practical for you, but it's practical for me. How in the world do we cultivate this kind of confidence in the Lord as we face the ups and downs of life? As there are times when life goes great, we're hanging out with friends, family's doing well, everybody's being blessed. But when there are times when we're going to that next doctor's appointment, or our kids, or our grandkids are struggling, or someone in our life is facing illness, or when we're facing financial difficulties, when there's confusion in our life, dare I say when there's darkness in our life, how do we cultivate the Lord is my shepherd and say it with authenticity, say it with reality, so we're living out of that kind of strength and trust. How do we do that? And this text teaches us there are three ways, three primary ways, three disciplines, if you would, that we have to cultivate in our lives in order to cultivate confidence and trust in our lives. So these these are not three things that you do once and they're done. When we look at spiritual disciplines and practical disciplines, 
the scripture kind of entails for us to and joins for us to continually. This is a continual cycle of entering in and practicing. And those three disciplines we're going to look at are embracing vulnerability, cultivating intimacy, and anticipating victory. For you to experience and recognize the structure of the psalm, verse 1 is kind of the thematic uh, introduction. It summarizes the theme of the entire psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's the theme of the psalm, and then he's going to exposit that. And the three disciplines in living confidently, walking confidently in the Lord, are embracing vulnerability, cultivating intimacy, and anticipating victory. It is always good when you're preaching on a text like one of these that talk about shepherds to do a little research of what life as a shepherd's like. I've never been a shepherd before. I've never had a a thing of sheep in the flock to look after. I'm a city slicker, born in New York, so that's kind of my background, Philadelphia. I remember the first time, my first night in Oklahoma when we moved to, see, that was my cross-cultural experience. I'll share this story. My first night in Oklahoma when we had moved out in 1996 and I was serving in the church out there and Evie and I go to bed and all of a sudden at 4.30 in the morning, and I still remember this, at 4.30 in the morning I hear something and I shot straight up in my bed. And I'm like, what is that? And Evie, who was raised more in the suburbs and the country and all of that than I was, she looked at me and she says, that was a cow mooing. I've never been a shepherd in my life. The closest I've gotten, domesticated dog and occasionally a cat. And I'm much better with the dogs than I am with the cats. So, did a little research on shepherd. Listened to a sermon on somebody who was talking about a shepherd and the shepherd's name. And this is a shepherd who later became a preacher in Scotland. And the shepherd's name is a man by the name of Douglas McMillan. And before he was converted and before he became a preacher, he was a shepherd of his family's farm or family's whatever in Scotland. He tells a story, and he remembers one day he was on a train, and he's traveling, and he's a shepherd, now a minister, and he's traveling with a shepherd friend of his. So here you have these two shepherds traveling on a train, and as they're going past, as the train is pulling out of the station, they look up on the top of the ridge, the top of the hill, and there's a flock of sheep that he could see that were not too far away, but they were at somewhat of a distance. The shepherd looks out, and he says to Douglas McMillan, he says, look, there are four of my lambs in the flock. Now, this was not a flock of five that he could just look and see four of them. And of course, Douglas McMillan didn't say, how could you tell? He knew, and he knew because What strikes shepherds more than anything else is that they intimately know their sheep. He could spot in a flock of 50, 75, 100, whatever it was, those four that were previously his. And Douglas McMillan goes on and he recounts, he says it's of the utmost importance that when he would go out with his flock, when they started to spread out and when they'd start to wander, that he would make eye contact with every single one of his sheep. He would look at, so whenever he'd see a fox coming in the distance, he could either yell, blow a whistle, do something to try to protect them. Now, why would a shepherd have to watch the sheep so closely? Why would a shepherd have to know his sheep so well and so intimately and so personally and so individually? 
because sheep are the most helpless animals of all the flock. They're not dogs. I can let my dog, I can let Calvin and Hobbes, even Hobbes who's getting older and doesn't see as well and all of that kind of stuff, I can let him out. And you know what he does? He runs back inside. Dogs do that. Sheep, they kind of go out and start singing Born Free. They start going out and they run and they wander and they go, why? And you know why? Because they're stupid. And guess what happens here? When the Lord says, when David says, the Lord is my shepherd, he's not saying, you folks are Albert Einstein rocket scientists. By implication, it means that we are sheep. We are unself-sufficient. We can't take care of ourselves. We can't rely upon ourselves. We're dependent by nature, by humanity, whether you're a believer or not a believer. You are dependent on the Lord, your creator. And of course, what is the point of that? If the Lord is our shepherd and we are sheep, that means what this text is telling us is that we are spiritually helpless, utterly unself-sufficient, and completely dependent. We are spiritually dependent. And Jesus is saying, I know you. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. And that means, by definition, we are vulnerable. The Lord is my shepherd and we are dependent sheep means we are vulnerable. We are vulnerable to attack. We're still sheep when it says God prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. Enemies means we're vulnerable to attack. So from without, from outside, we're vulnerable to attack. Wolves can come in. Foxes can come in and attack us. We're also vulnerable from within. If we're unself-sufficient, we can't see truth. We can't take care of ourselves. We are helpless. We are weak. We are vulnerable. The question becomes, do you embrace your vulnerability or do you try to hide it? Do you try to protect yourself from it? Do you try to avoid it at all costs? Or do you embrace it and choose to enter into it and plunge the reality of your vulnerability into the Lord himself? Denying vulnerability is not an option. You are vulnerable. I'm reading a book right now by a writer, a Christian writer. His name's Kurt Thompson. He's written a book called The Soul of Shame. And in it, he talks about the nature of vulnerability. Listen to what he says. He says, we tend to think of vulnerability as something we experience only at particular times or occasions. We sense it when we are criticized, when we are ill, when we've been fired from a job, when we have a difficult conversation with someone that we know is not particularly fond of us or more powerful of us, when we have to speak in front of an audience. He writes, this is not an inaccurate description of what it means to feel vulnerable, but it's not a complete description. For he writes, in reality, vulnerability is not something we choose or that is true only in a given moment, while the rest of the time it is not. Rather, vulnerability is something we are. He says, this is why we wear clothes, live in houses, have speed limits. He says, so much of what we do in life is designed among other things, to protect us from the fact that we are vulnerable at all times. To be human is to be vulnerable. 
And he then goes on to say, he says, so vulnerability is not a question of if, but rather to what degree. This does not imply that we have no choices of being more openly so, but it is an illusion to believe that we are not vulnerable. It is something we can hide, but not that we can eliminate. The question then is not if we are or will be vulnerable, but rather how and when we enter into it consciously and intentionally for the sake of creating a world of goodness and beauty. David trusts himself to the Lord, recognizes, embraces his vulnerability, and says, I'm going to plunge it into the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. And if we think of interpreting this psalm in light of Jesus, not only the fact that Jesus is our shepherd, but that Jesus lived as we ought to live. So he lived and entered into the condition of a sheep, did he not? And did he not live with then God the Father as his shepherd? He entered into a vulnerable condition, and how did he live his life? He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to finish his work. He plunged himself into the Lord. He committed himself continually to a life of cultivating prayer. He retreated for entire nights at a time to pray and foster To bring his vulnerability, he was still God, but in his humanity, he said, I'm choosing disciples. Let me pray all night before I choose my leadership team. I'm going before the cross, but let me first go into the Garden of Gethsemane in order to embrace this vulnerability and say, Father, I wish this cup could be taken from me. I would love to not have to drink this cup, look into this chasm of death and hell itself, yet Not my will, but your will be done. What is Jesus doing as a sheep? He's entrusting himself to God the Father as his shepherd and saying, you will provide. He's embracing vulnerability. Jesus always depended on, trusted in, and confidently entrusted himself to the care and the provision and the protection of his shepherd, his heavenly Father. Do we? That's the first point. You must embrace vulnerability. Think just application. How much do we do in our lives to avoid vulnerability? How much do we do in our lives to hide who we really are? Maybe even from ourselves. Maybe even from those who we're closest to. Are we always living in fear? Mistrusting? Denying our very humanity? The Lord is my shepherd means I will embrace my vulnerability. Doesn't mean I'm going to share everything about myself continually to everyone, but it means I'm going to entrust myself to the Father. Second, we must cultivate intimacy. If you look with me at verses 2 and 3, these are four poetic, what they call kola, or individual lines, each one describing something the shepherd, that we are plunging ourselves into that he does for us. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Look at this. This is poetically describing the idyllic life of the sheep as the shepherd leads them to green pastures where they can feed and still waters where they can drink. 
If you look at this, the shepherd here is giving his sheep abundant provision for the journey ahead. We've said that this is a confidence psalm. This is also a pilgrimage psalm. If you take a look at this, and we'll refer to this even later, David is on pilgrimage. The theme is the Lord is my shepherd. He's going to lead me and guide me. I I lack nothing as I enter into pilgrimage. He provides for me. He provides my provisions. He provides my necessities. He provides for me rest. He provides all that I need so that as I go through and I wander through this wilderness and I go, and as I do what? As I'm led on righteous paths and paths of righteousness, the wilderness will lead me to face darkness and distress. I'm led through the valley of the shadow of death, but you are still with me. On this journey, as I go through this pilgrimage, my greatest fear, the fear of being alone, the fear of being abandoned, I will never have to face because you are with me. And I go through that, and I will come out on the other side victorious. This is a pilgrimage psalm that leads us to the very temple mount of God where we will live and dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The question is, are you trying to live this pilgrimage on your own? See, this is a wonderful picture as we set out on this pilgrimage of rest, is it not? I don't know about you, but I love meditating on green pastures. I'm picturing a golf course. I'm picturing the British Open that's happening as we speak. And Jordan Spieth, who's leading it, at least he was when I left this morning. I'm picturing still waters where we're resting. I'm watching people throw a frisbee and all this. Okay, this is the picture of rest and calm. It's also a fulfillment that we hear of Jesus calling and inviting when he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and listen carefully to these next words. Learn from me. He invites us to enter into rest. And then he says, we have to learn from him, for he's gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Learning from him means we need to learn to cultivate rest in our lives. We need to learn to cultivate intimacy in our lives. And that is because the rest that we need is so much more than physical. We need a rest from our constantly performing, our constant busyness, Our refusal to unplug. I wonder how many of us can even pray with our phones turned off, with being unplugged from Facebook. I wonder how many of us can stop from the busyness of work and friends and getting together and sports and this and that and stop and actually sit and do nothing. How many of us practice on a monthly basis, let alone a weekly basis, The discipline of solitude, where we're just sitting in the presence of the Lord, where he's leading us besides green pastures and still waters. See, I don't know about you, but I know I'm always plagued by the incessant need, the inner critic I have to perform to prove myself, to validate myself. The inner critic inside of me that's always going, how's the church going? Did the mission trip go well? How are people doing? Are we making an impact? Is the gospel moving forward? Are we growing? Are people loving the Lord? How's Evie doing? How's this doing? Rest is a difficult discipline. 
But see, what is worse is when I'm not cultivating this kind of rest, when I'm not hearing Jesus say, come, unplug, and calm down. Do you know what happens? I end up putting on so much pressure on myself, and as a result, I'm putting so much pressure on others. I ask your forgiveness if you've ever felt from me pressure for the church to grow. I ask your forgiveness if you've ever felt from me pressure. Because that is not the gospel, my friends. And I ask your forgiveness for any time I've misled you away from the gospel because my vision for my life and for ours is that we would fall in utterly in love with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it would be good. It's not meant to be pressure-filled news. It is meant to be incredible news. The news that our shepherd offers us rest. Am I the only chief of sinners here, or does anybody else do that to themselves and to their families? All I know is i got to lead the way repenting before you. We need to fall in love with the gospel and not our incessant need to work. See, the, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And as we're going to see, that, those paths include suffering. And the only way to get through the valley of the shadow of death is by cultivating intimacy. Cultivating the promise, for you are with me. Does this give us a vision? We're coming to worship, not to work hard, but to be intimate with our Lord who's living and walking amongst us and saying, flock, come here, let me love you. Enter into this rest, enter into this good news. Oh, that we would cultivate that kind of intimacy. Which brings us to our final point. We cultivate confidence and trust in our communion with God by embracing vulnerability. In one way, we could say we embrace faith. We cultivate confidence and communion with God and trust in the Lord by cultivating intimacy. In another way, we could say that's cultivating love. And lastly, as we go through this royal pilgrimage psalm and this journey, what's missing out of that triad? Faith, love, and hope. These three remain, faith, hope, and love. We need to cultivate hope. We need to anticipate victory. Verse 4 reads, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of the death, exile, exile is the next moment of pilgrimage. It is a pilgrimage. See, and by the way, outlines stink, so sticking to outlines are hard. You're Even though we're preaching this vulnerability, intimacy, victory, throw them all in the salad bowl because they all have to exist. When you're facing the valley of death, by the way, you're vulnerable, and you won't get through it if you don't cultivate intimacy. So all three of these things have to be jumbled up at the same. Let's train our thinking that way a little bit. What do you say? Because what does he say? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, so that's a vulnerable moment, you are with me. I will fear no evil. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. And actually, the Hebrew for follow there means pursue. The covenant goodness and the covenant mercy, and that word, yes, again, is said. that shows up in every psalm. Have you ever noticed that? The covenant loyalty, the bond of our shepherd who is bound up with us, pursues us with his loyalty and faith. 
We're, you know why I chose and we did Come Thou Fount this morning? Because we're sheep prone to wander. I hope you feel it. And do you know what our shepherd is doing? He's pursuing us with his loyalty to us. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. See, if the first stanza of this psalm sounds real nice, doesn't it? I love the Lord is my shepherd, green pastures, golf, British. Now it gets dark and distressing. Valley of the shadow of death and enemies show up. And what gets us through? You are with me. Your presence. Union with God. And learning to cultivate that. But I want to show you something else here. Because Tremper Longman, one of my former Old Testament professors in his commentary of this, he shows us in verses 5 and 6, which is the second stanza of the poem, the metaphor, the focus switches or shifts from the focus of a shepherd metaphor to a host metaphor. God moves from shepherd, or at least the fo- he may still be shepherd in this, but he's now the host of a banquet. And the psalmist, David, and of course us, as the Lord is our shepherd, we're the honored guests at his banquet. And look at the imagery. God, as the host, prepares a table. Table always means food. The prophets talk about this. We've, we read from, frequently from Isaiah 25 that talks about, on, the, on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. We are moving now from grass and water to fatty, rich food and well-refined, gorgeous, beautiful wine. Do you sense the movement in the pilgrimage? Isaiah says a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. And listen to this promise. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. How much do you anticipate this now? How much do you live in the presence with enemies, with wolves, from your own sheepness, your own helplessness, darkness, depression, despair, death itself, anticipating the victory that is ours, that is already won because of and in our great shepherd, Jesus Christ himself. You prepare a table. Our shepherd has become the host of a banquet, saying, come, honor guests, sit at the table while I bring you rich food and aged wine, and guess who's there? Your very enemies are sitting because they're being mocked because the victory has been won and is now being celebrated. Are you an honored guest at the party, at the banquet, thrown by the Lord? And you know what evangelism is? Do we have a heart for cities like Montgomery? And cities like Port Orange and New Smyrna to be able to invite people and say, come to the party. God is throwing a party. And you're invited. Oh, that the gospel again would be beautiful to us. How in the world does this occur? How in the world can we be certain that this is true? 
We said earlier that Jesus is both the shepherd, remember John 10, that says, I am the good shepherd, I know my sheep and my sheep know me, and I lay down my life for the sheep. But Jesus, remember what Paul says in Galatians 4, when the time had fully come, God sent a son, born of a woman, born under law. That means entered into human history under all the same conditions of humanity. That means he entered into human history as a sheep, living a human life led by his father. He's living out our life for us as our substitute. And he not only is our substitute in death, he's our substitute in life. He is led by his shepherd, God the Father. As a sheep, he says, the Lord, God, Father, you're my shepherd. And an Old Testament scholar by the name of Douglas Green points out wonderfully that this is Jesus' story and as Messiah, and as such, this is the story of the gospel, the story of redemption. He says, God the Father is Jesus' shepherd, providing richly and wonderfully for him. Jesus literally passes through the valley of the shadow of death, except for Jesus, the shadow is gone. He literally takes upon himself our death. The psalmist David says, his cup overflows. Goodness and mercy pursue him. For what is us a cup of blessing, of love, of favor, of goodness, of mercy. For Jesus was a cup of wrath and punishment. Jesus, as both shepherd and sheep, enters into your and my greatest vulnerability, the vulnerability of alienation and abandonment and death itself. And as the psalm says, he restores my soul. In the resurrection, you have the truest restoration of both soul and body, which is why the victory is ours. We're not talking about something that's a possibility. We are talking about something that is a certainty because Jesus is raised from the dead, ascended to the right hand of glory on high, and governs and rules over you with love and wisdom now. The question is, do we anticipate that? Do we taste that? You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Do you, do I live in anticipation of this? Is the gospel truly good news? This is what is ours in Jesus. The Lord is my shepherd. He takes us on pilgrimage, providing for us every step of the way as we enter into and go through on a daily basis probably, moments of exile, moments of loneliness, moments of aloneness, but he's with us. And then the shepherd is our host, inviting us to the victory parade, inviting us to the banquet. And friends, Jesus' story, if you are a Christian, by the way, Jesus' story is your story. And if you're not a Christian, I invite you, make it your story. This is the only story that gives us what we most desperately need, faith, hope, and love. Let's pray. Lord, you are our shepherd, and I thank you that preaching is not simply learning, it's worshiping. 
I know I'm, I'm a dumb sheep and I'm vulnerable and I need help every step of the way. And I thank you that you're my shepherd. And I thank you that you're the shepherd of Spruce Creek. May we follow you together. May we embrace our vulnerability. May we cultivate intimacy. And may we know and anticipate and live out of the victory that you give us in Christ. For Jesus, to you and to you alone, be glory. It really is all about you. In your name we pray. Amen.